Legacies, where we every single episode dive into the stories and the players and the legends that make up the mythology of baseball and have made this the game that we love so much. My name is Daniel Port, and I am excited to have you here with us today. Let me apologize in advance before we get started, folks, that I have a bit of a cold this morning, so if I sound a little nasally or a little froggy, at least more so than usual. That's why. So thank you for your patience with that. I tried to get all the sniffles and stuff out. But if I missed one, I apologize in advance. We've got a really fun episode today. And I'm really glad we're doing it. So what I thought we would do, after talking about athletes who have passed over the years or talk about some of the older players, I want to talk about some of the players who just retired. We had a couple of really significant retirements happen this year. And I thought it would be fun to look at their legacies and where they fit into the bigger picture of things. And... Today's subject, I feel like we haven't done a pitcher in a while, so I wanted to do a pitcher, and because there's Miguel Cabrera to talk about, there's a lot of great players to talk about, but I thought we'd get started with Adam Wainwright, who I think is a really interesting player and a really interesting legacy to look into, and so I, I thought this would be a fun way to kick off the retirement series, as I like to think of it. Memory is a strange thing, especially when it comes to athletes and how we remember them. There's a well-known concept in psychology called the Mandela effect, which is where a group of people will remember something one way and reality it was never that that thing or the, the way that they remember it or something else. There are very famous examples of this effect throughout pop culture where you'll normally see it, at least see its most prominent examples. Uh, for example, if uh, you asked someone to describe Mr. Monopoly from the board game Monopoly, they describe him at some point with a monocle on thing is, he's never had a monocle. He's never been drawn with one. There's never been a monocle on Mr. Monopoly. In The Empire Strikes Back, we remember the infamous line where Darth Vader reveals himself to be Luke Skywalker's father as, Luke, I am your father. But that actually isn't the line at all. We all add the phrase, of the world, to the Queen song, We Are the Champions, right? But that's never uttered in the song, although I think I blame that one on the second Mighty Ducks movie because they do it at the end, but that's a whole different thing. That is that is my generation's fault. Finally, something you can actually blame us for. But you get the idea, right? These things that we are sure exist and don't actually exist, and it happens as a community. And I think we do this in how we remember athletes as well. How many times have you gone back to look at an athlete that felt like they were dominant and realized they only had a short peak? or they never won an MVP, or a Cy Young. You see their war total, and suddenly you're like, what, that's it? And I think that that gets like really, because you get in this place where you swear that they did win that MVP, or that they had this huge long period of time where they were dominant. And it turns out that this didn't happen, at least not in the way you remember it. And I know I do this all the time especially when it comes to awards or how many all-star games a player went to or things like that. Like, I have this memory, especially if it's a player like I went, I lived through, I watched play. I really get this uh, all the time. And today's primary subject 
is a perfect example of the Mandela effect happening in sports to me, at least the way I think of it. And I'm sure it happened to many others as well. And that's if I asked you to guess how many Cy Youngs did Adam Wainwright win, you'd emphatically answer at least one. Turns out he never did. And that blows my mind because I am positive in my brain that he did. And, and, and he didn't. <laughs> and I like memories of him winning a Cy Young. Those aren't memories. That's not real. But I have them in my brain. It's a very confusing thing. But, you know, this is this happens to be with guys like Adam Wainwright. Think about it this way. If I were to ask you to guess how much war he accumulated over his 18-year career, you'd probably say something at least in like the high 50s or the low 60s. Or something that's like borderline Hall of Fame. Wrong. The answer's just 44.9. That's it. But then, wait, so now I'm remembering it this way. So was Adam Wainwright not good? Of course not. Adam Wainwright was very good. There always has to be like a kernel of truth to misremembering something. Like if you look at the, the Mr. Monopoly mistake, it makes sense when you think of, say, Mr. Peanut, who is a very similar, you know, tuxedo-wearing mascot with wealth, and he's got a, a monocle very famously. And there's a chance that probably as a culture we like squash those two together in our brains, stuff like that. And when you look at something like remembering Adam Wainwright as being this dominant athlete for like a, a decade or well, winning Cy Young, stuff like that, there's a kernel of truth to this. He came very close to winning Cy Young Awards and he he was dominant, but for like more like a five-year period. Like all these different things. So there's always a kernel of truth. And Adam Wainwright is one of them. Adam Wainwright was very, very good. It's just we misremembered how long he was very good. And because eventually, and we'll get into this, but he was very elite. But injuries and age robbed him of a huge chunk of his prime. And frankly, the way he came back and recovered from injuries really had a long-term lasting effect on Wainwright as he aged into the latter part of his career and probably robbed him of some really prime years. And like I was saying before, and I'm guilty of this a lot, there's a question of losing perspective when viewing a player's career in retrospect that can happen sometimes versus how it felt in the moment and therefore then how we remember it. From 2007 to roughly about 2014, Wainwright was one of the most dominant pitchers on the planet. When we look at those seven years on a baseball reference page as a selection of his 18-year career, though, it can feel like a really short time period. But then seven years is three quarters of a decade. I remember living through it, and it felt like his peak was so long it felt like Adam Wainwright was never gonna go away uh, during that time period and and, like think about it I'm 38 okay so seven years is 18% of my lifetime and so for nearly one-fifth of my life Adam Wainwright was utterly dominant and one of the most feared pitchers in baseball and so it makes some sense that when we look at our memories of Wainwright that's who we remember but then feel underwhelmed when we look back historically from a big-picture perspective, like we have to do here uh, on this podcast. Now, that's not to say Wainwright's accomplishments as a pro weren't impressive. They absolutely are. Let me dive into this. Aside from the aforementioned 44.9 career war, he amassed 2,668.3 innings pitched, which is 211th all-time, to go along with 2,202 strikeouts, which is 65th all-time, 
and 200 wins, which comes up to 18th all time. Now, Cy Young career shares essentially measure on average how many Cy Young votes did a player get per year weighted for what place votes they were. So like a first place vote counts for more than a second place vote, blah, blah, blah. And Wainwright's career side shares was 1.98, which is 25th all time. And that's a testament to how good he was during his peak. His trademark pitch was an absolutely devastating curveball that ranks amongst one of the greatest old school curves of all time. Now, since 2002, when Sports Info Solutions started tracking pitch value, no curveballs accumulated more value than Adam Wainwright's. Since 2002, it's basically been the best curveball in baseball. Period. He put together a 3.53 career ERA to go along with a 1.242 whip. But across that seven-year peak I mentioned earlier, he put together a 2.99 ERA. Only six pitchers managed a better ERA over that time period. But only one, King Felix, beat Wainwright in both ERA and innings pitched over that time period, while no one topped Wayno in wins over that time period. In addition, he finished ninth over that stretch in wars. That's a pretty dominant stretch. Uh, that, that's very impressive. And this is why it's important not to lose sight of when Wainwright was at his best and how dominant he was then, because we know the ending, because we know the overall big picture. Now, he may not have the longevity of a Hall of Fame pitcher, and while he was probably never the absolute like one of the best pitchers of his generation, it would be hard to argue that he wasn't one of the elite few during his heyday. He's not given the St. Christmas Day speech, but he's there. He's amongst the Band of Brothers, so to say. And that's all before you take into consideration how great he was in the postseason. Wainwright is one of the best postseason pitchers ever and you're going to see it as we go through year to year but take it in overall is 114.1 postseason innings pitched is 23rd all time was 2.83 era is ninth all time and his 1.11 whip is eighth all time of all the players ahead of him in those categories he has them all beaten caper nine which is surprising considering wainwright wasn't strikeout dependent at all and in case you're wondering if it was just like cardinal devil magic or the case of a great defense propping up a pitcher amongst pitchers throwing at least 110 innings in the playoffs wainwright has the third best playoff fip ever with just hall of famers marion rivera and whitey ford ahead of him that's incredible he's easily amongst some of the greatest playoff pitchers ever oh and did i mention by the way he saved a couple of series clinching games in the playoffs because uh, he he did Wainwright was the kind of pitcher who was able to rise up in the biggest moments, and that too had a huge effect on how we viewed his legacy, not just as a player, but as one of the most beloved Cardinals ever. But where did it all start? We'll dive into it, but first, real quick, let's take our first break here, and then we'll come back and we will start spinning the tale of Adam Wainwright. Welcome back. The story of the man, his teammates called Wayno, started in southeast Georgia in a town called Brunswick, 
where Adam Wainwright was born in 1981 to Bill and Nancy Wainwright. Growing up, uh, Adam's father was apparently not in the picture much after his parents divorced, and he was mostly raised by his mother and older brother Trey, who he credits with his love for and education in sports. He excelled in many different sports uh, and academics in high school, while starring as a wide receiver in football and a pitcher in baseball, where baseball is definitely where his star shone brightest, so to say, as he was named the Georgia Player of the Year in 2000 uh, in baseball. That same year, he was drafted with the 29th pick in the draft by his hometown-ish team, the Atlanta Braves, who he had rooted for his entire life. Immediately jumps into the baseball scene and takes it by storm. He dominates rookie ball later that year, striking out 81 hitters across 61.1 innings pitched with a 2.35 ERA, which led Baseball America to label him the number seven prospect in the Braves organization, while praising his overall command and strike-throwing ability, which would mostly follow him through his entire career. And now, fascinatingly, they raved about his changeup and called his curveball average. And in 2001, he pitches well enough to earn a promotion to high A, where he's great. Throws 163.1 innings with 167 strikeouts and earns a 3.31 ERA. Baseball America bumps him up to the number two prospect in the Atlanta system, singling out his fastball as his best pitch. But now they've seen enough to predict his changeup and curveball would become plus pitches. And it's so fascinating to see these old scouting reports, whether it's from Baseball America or other sites, just because we know how the story ends. And I know his curveball is going to become one of the all-time great curveballs. While in terms of value, his fastball's changeup would rarely rack up a ton of value for him throughout his career. Fastball special would come and go, but neither pitch is exactly the pitches you're going to tell your grandkids about where his curveball was, that kind of thing. So it's fascinating to look back and see that he hadn't even quite developed that yet in his career. Now, in 2003, he's bumped up to AA and pitches well enough, throwing a 149.2 innings with 128 strikeouts and a solid 3.37 ERA and a 1.12 whip while appearing in the Futures game that year, which tells you the name he was starting to build for himself already here in the minor leagues. Now, this would have been enough to earn him a promotion to AAA and, and the label of top prospect in the Atlanta system. But that wasn't the only major change life had in store for Wainwright that year. In the offseason, fate would guide Wayno to his ultimate destination when Atlanta traded him and Jason Marquis to St. Louis for J.D. Drew. And this is a fascinating trade. Drew was fantastic that year for Atlanta. Finishing 6th in MVP voting, the, the Atlanta ended up winning 96 games, and the NL East. They end up ultimately being eliminated by Houston in the NLDS that year, but it's hard to judge the success of a trade, I think, by, especially one made in the offseason like this, based on playoff success. Just because the playoffs are such a crapshoot, especially in this era, where there were less games played in the playoffs and less playoff series that I think you you win 96 games and in, in win your division that, that that the trade did the job you know what I mean uh, especially if the player then goes on to gain a ton of MVP votes and, and really have great success now the trade-off though is the following year Drew left in free agency to go play for the Los Angeles Dodgers now Marquis over on the other side of this trade 
Jason Marquis doesn't really thrive in St. Louis. And didn't really have too storied of a career in general. He had some success with the Cubs, I think, later on down the line, but that's about it. We all know Wainwright would go on to contend for multiple Cy Young awards, become one of the best pitchers in the aughts for St. Louis. Uh, he wins. It goes to multiple World Series with them. Uh, it, it's hard to really judge his entire total value to that franchise in just a couple sentences. That's why we're doing a giant podcast to do it. But uh, I don't think, obviously it was a great, great move for St. Louis. I don't think it was a bad move for Atlanta either. Again, Drew put them over the top. They win 96 games. They win their division. It, it's hard to fault them for making that move. I think this is one of the genuinely rare trades where both teams got exactly what they needed in a trade. And I think looking back on it, both teams would make the decision again sort of thing. Now, unfortunately, Wainwright's stardom in St. Louis was delayed, as while he would indeed reach AAA in 2004, an elbow strain would limit him to just 12 games pitched, and he would find himself back in AAA for 2005. Keep an eye on that elbow strain. That is going to pop up a couple times in our story here. Now, having recovered enough to pitch in the Arizona Fall League and pitch pretty well during that time period, Baseball America was willing to name him the number two prospect in the St. Louis system, and 2005 ends up being a bit of a letdown. But considering the injury he was recovering from, it shouldn't have been all that surprising. Everyone knew the skill set, knew the things uh, like control and velocity would take some time coming back. In fact, he pitched well enough towards the end of the season, despite a season-long 4.4 ERA in AAA, that St. Louis would call him up on September 11, 2005 to make his major league debut out of the bullpen where he would throw just two innings. He made enough progress in the offseason that he earned a role in the bullpen right out of spring training in 2006, and he would pitch out of the pen for the entire 2006 season and did well, throwing 75 innings with 72 strikeouts and a 3.12 ERA. Now, a fun fact about the season is he still managed to get a few at-bats despite being a, re- uh, a reliever, and across his career, Wainwright was always a pretty good hitter. He won a couple. He won a Silver Slugger Award at some point in his career. For a pitcher, he was a pretty good hitter, I should say. And in his first at-bat, he actually slugged a home run on the first pitch he saw, <laughs> That's which is pretty crazy. I can't imagine making my first at-bat, seeing the first pitch I'm ever going to see in my career, and I crush it for a home run. That's every kid's dream. That, that's everyone's dream. But that wasn't the only storyline from that season, though. In September... The Cardinals' star closer, Jason Isringhausen, was injured. He went down for the season with a a season-ending hip injury. And suddenly, Wainwright found himself the next man up as the Cardinals' new closer. This is a rookie. Now, the crazy part is that St. Louis is in the thick of a pennant race at this point, right, as he's taking over. Uh, They led the division by a slim margin over Houston, and they were hot on their heels. And... Suddenly, it was on this young prospect, this rookie, to anchor their bullpen. And Wainwright handles the job admirably, including saving two crucial games against the Astros on the last days of September to lock up the NL Central. And for the first time, Adam Wainwright found himself in the playoffs for the Cardinals. He pitches in three games in the NLDS against the Padres, recording a save in 3.2 innings pitched. A save two games in the NLCS against the Mets where the Cardinals would prevail in seven games, including an epic moment in Game 7, where Wainwright ended the decisive game by striking out Carlos Beltran, who's one of the greatest hitters of that generation. 
in just a month, Wainwright had gone from a rookie middle reliever to closing division clinching games to closing playoff games. But now he saw himself staring down closing games in the World Series. And to his credit, he didn't blink one bit. He pitches three innings in the series, including one save, and doesn't give up any runs in the series. When the Cardinals win the series in five games, it was Wainwright on the mound giving that final out to secure World Series glory for St. Louis. It's a fascinating start to a career for a player. Obviously, Wainwright would accomplish so much more in his career, especially as a starter, but it makes you understand just how he meant, how much like he came to mean to the city of St. Louis. This is how he started his career. It's hard to better endear yourself to a fan base than to be the guy on the mound getting swamped by your team, bathed in the highest glory in the sport. That tends to leave an impression on a fan base. And only one player, think about this, this is a fun fact, only one player in MLB history has saved at least four games in the postseason in their career and made more postseason starts than Adam Wainwright's 16 postseason starts, and that's John Smoltz. That's it, and all of that started this season for Wainwright. And now that Wainwright had already cemented himself in Cardinals lore, it would take one more year, but it wouldn't be long before Wainwright would extend that legacy into becoming one of the greatest Cardinals starters ever, and one of the greatest Cardinals ever, frankly. Heading into the 2007 season, Isringhausen was back from injury and reclaimed his spot as the team's closer, which made sense. Wayno provided, performed, I should say, admirably last season, but Isringhausen was one of the best closers in the game. And so instead... Wainwright was transitioned back to his true role in the starting rotation, and he struggled at first with the transition, tossing a 4.66 ERA across 102.1 innings in the first half of the season. But like remembering how to ride a bike, it all came back to him, and he settled in throughout the second half, uh, pitching 99.2 innings pitched with an elite 2.71 ERA with 77 strikeouts and a 1.25 whip. In fact, he really only had a difficult first five weeks or so, which speaks to the difficulty of that transition. He had a 2.94 ERA from around mid-May onward, and that was a sign of things to come and and showed Wainwright was really on the verge of potentially breaking out. Overall, Wainwright ended up throwing 202 innings with 136 strikeouts and a 3.7 ERA and a 1.396 whip while being worth 2.8 war. It was clear, by the way, though, that he ended the season the better things were on the horizon, even with that encouraging season. Overall, a major injury to ace Chris Carpenter had derailed the season for the Cardinals as a team, and the year after winning the World Series, the Cardinals won just 78 games and finished third in the division, missing the playoffs. It would take until 2009 before Wainwright and the Cardinals would see the playoffs again. In 2008, at the age of 26, Wainwright picked up right where he left off at the end of the previous year, pitching 132 innings pitched, with 91 strikeouts, and 11-3 record. He was incredible in April and May with a 2.79 ERA and 2.93 ERA in each month, respectively, before a strained right middle finger derailed his season in June, where he pitched the tune of a 4.85 ERA. Eventually, the injury would force him to the injured list, 
where he would miss the next two-plus months of the season. He would come back and pitch well in August and September, but the damage was already done to the Cardinals' season, as they would finish fourth in the NL Central and miss the playoffs yet again. Now, the 2009 season would see Wainwright return healthy and determined, and the results were hard to ignore, as he would end up contending seriously for his first shot at a Cy Young Award this year. He is absolutely unhittable all season long, throwing 233 innings with 212 strikeouts and a remarkable 2.63 ERA to go along with a 1.21 whip and a league-leading 19 wins. In case you're wondering just how well Wainwright earned the nickname Uncle Charlie with his curveball that season, it had an absurd 49.3% K rate that season to go along with a 16.3 swing strike rate the hitters literally had a negative one WRC plus against the pitch that season. Think about that for a second. A WRC plus of 100 would represent how a league average hitter against curveballs would hit. And every number above or below would represent a percentage better or worse than that league average hitter. So like a hitter with a 95 WRC plus would be 5% worse than the league average. The hitters had a negative one WRC plus against Wainwright's curveball in 2009, which meant hitters facing Wainwright were 101% worse against his curveball than the average hitter against curveballs. That's insane. 136 of his strikeouts came via the curveball. It just was an outrageously good pitch. It's not like Clayton Kershaw levels of curveball domination who would often post like negative 50 WRC plus seasons with his curveball. But it's easily up there in the discussion for greatest curveballs of all time. It just was incredible for Wayne. Oh, by the way, he did his a volume, too, as he led the league in batter's face that season as well. Wainwright would finish third in the NL in Cy Young votes. And honestly, this is probably the right call. He was worth 6.3 war, which is actually third in the league in war behind teammate Chris Carpenter and rightful winner Tin Lincecum, who won, who led NL pitchers with a 7.4 war. There's obviously, despite that, there's certainly an argument for Wainwright. He got more first-place votes than Lincecum. He threw more innings than Lincecum, and he won four more games as well. But Lincecum had 49 more strikeouts and just pitched eight fewer innings. And he had a better ERA at 2.48, and his 1.04 whip was far and away better than Wainwright's 1.210 mark. Add in the war and... While this is one of the tighter Cy Young races I've ever seen, I think they got it right. I, I really do. This is Wainwright's fate against, uh, like across his entire prime. He's never really the best pitcher in the league, but he's perpetually the second best pitcher in the league at, at any given moment. Which, I mean that not as a knock on him, by the way. It's genuinely like impressive to be that consistent and be that dominant. I think some of it was, obviously, I think not being a big strikeout pitcher hurt him, especially in war and things like that. But... Being the second best pitcher in the league for five, six years, every single year, is still pretty darn impressive. So I don't want to take that away from him. It's just hard that when you look at it throughout any year, he's never really the best pitcher in the league that year. Now, when your aces finish second and third in Cy Young voting, you usually stand a pretty good chance of winning a lot of games. The Cardinals do exactly that, winning 91 games and finishing first in the NL Central. They end up facing the Dodgers in the NLDS with Carpenter on the mound for game one. He gets roughed up as L.A. takes Game 1. Wainwright steps up for Game 2 and throws a fantastic eight innings with seven strikeouts, giving up just one lone run on a solo shot. Andre Ethier 
the Cardinals would tie the game in the ninth and actually take a 2-1 lead off of Clayton Kershaw coming to try and close the game before Ryan Franklin would blow the save and allow the Dodgers to take a 3-2 victory. Down two games, the Cardinals would go out with a whimper in Game 3, and they were eliminated despite Wainwright's fantastic outing. It would again be another three seasons before we'd see Wainwright and the Cardinals in the playoffs again. Now, 2010 would bring even more dominance for Wainwright. Now, uh, you think it would be hard to follow up on 2009, but he actually gets better. Somehow he actually managed to improve upon 2009. Throwing 230.1 innings with 213 strikeouts to the tune of a 2.42 ERA and a greatly improved 1.051 whip. He's named to his first All-Star game and finishes second in the Cy Young voting this time. He was actually the fourth pitcher in the league in pitcher war. That year behind Josh Johnson, Ubaldo Jimenez, and clear-cut winner Roy Halladay. But he won 20 games that year. A good argument by throwing more innings than anyone not named Roy Halladay. But once again, he was second best, not number one. As Halladay had a year for the ages with 250.2 innings pitched and a 2.44 ERA and was worth 8.5 war. And the biggest piece of Wainwright's success that year was a huge improvement in his non-breaking ball pitches. In 2009, his fastball was worth minus, so negative 13.4 p-val. In 2010, it was worth 9.1 p-val. That's pitch value, so to say. His changeup was worth negative 0.9 p-val in 2009. and was worth 4.3 p-val in 2010. So what this allowed him to be was in 2009, he was much more reliant on his slider and curveball to get him by both of which were excellent pitches. And now he was a little more rounded out. He was a much more complete pitcher. And like I said, that wouldn't always like last. His fastball would kind of come and go throughout his entire career. We'd have some seasons where it was incredibly successful and valuable for him, and somewhere it wasn't. But when it was working, combining especially his fastball with his two excellent breaking balls, and especially his curveball, that was a huge part of making him elite and when he had elite seasons. Now, unfortunately that season, St. Louis rode the razor's edge of contention all season long. And despite finishing with 89 wins, they end up on the outside of the playoffs looking in. Now, that wasn't the only bad thing about how that season ended, though. Towards the end of the season, Wainwright started complaining of pain in his elbow, but he pitched through it. And this will become a habit of Wainwright's throughout his career. And... This would have massive repercussions for his 2011 season. Now, heading into spring training the following year, Wayne noticed the pain in his elbow had persisted. So the team has a look at it. They found UCL damage in his pitching elbow, and later that month, he would undergo Tommy John surgery. This would force him to miss all of the 2011 season. Now, this would be a huge blow to Wainwright's legacy, not just because of the stats and the time he missed, because the Cardinals actually go on to win the World Series that year without him. They would end up giving him a ring, obviously, but it, it had to feel pretty hollow compared to his first World Series. And it also would have some major implications in... I mean, I'm not a doctor. I'm going to say that a couple times today. But what we're going to find is that 2012 found a motivated Wainwright attempting a comeback way ahead of schedule. He was expected to miss the first couple months of the 2012 season as well with that recovery from Tommy John surgery. But instead, he comes back early and was back pitching in spring training that year. 
and elbow issues are going to plague Wainwright his entire career. This is something that's not going to go away, and and I'll talk about this a little more later, but I can't help but wonder about whether or not coming back early, while admirable and impressive, is ill-advised. But that is what he and the Cardinals decided was best. And the thing to keep in mind is coming back from Tommy John is is a process. We've talked about this a couple times on the the podcast. It it takes time, even after you are healed. You're back to 100%. Doctors like he is fully healed. It still takes time to regain the skills, especially like command and velocity. It takes time to get those things back, even after you're back to 100%. And you see that carryover into Wainwright's season. He throw 198.2 innings with 184 strikeouts, but managed a 3.94 ERA, a 1.248 whip to go along with 14 wins. And uh, the truth is, Wainwright mostly just struggled through the first half of the season, which again, given what he was coming back from, isn't surprising. He had a 4.56 ERA during that first half. But in the second half of the season, you know, which basically is when he was supposed to come back, or at least expected the return from Tommy John surgery in the first place. He threw 96 innings with a 3.28 ERA. The Cardinals would finish second in the division that season with 88 wins, but would make the playoffs a wild card, where they would uh, win the wild card game over the Braves and move on to the division series against the Nationals. Wainwright would take the mound in game one, where he threw a 5.2 inning gem, where he gave just one run and struck out 10 hitters. He wouldn't get the win, though, as the Cardinals' bullpen would blow the save. Uh, St. Louis, though, would win two of the next three games to force a decisive Game 5, where Wainwright would make his second start of the series. This time, though, things would not go as planned for Waino, as he would get roughed up, giving up six earned runs in just 2.1 innings pitched. Luckily, it was the Nationals' turn for their bullpen to blow a save, and St. Louis would prevail, moving on to face the San Francisco Giants in the NLCS. Wainwright would make another start in the series and would get right back on track, pitching seven innings, giving up just one earned run with five strikeouts and getting the win. So overall in this playoff series run, while Wainwright was very good, unfortunately St. Louis would fall just short against the Giants and would find themselves eliminated in a tight seven-game series, just barely missing a second consecutive World Series berth. Now, in the offseason, the Cardinals signed Wainwright to a five-year contract extension worth $97 million. It was the largest contract ever for a Cardinals pitcher at the time. The 2013 season would see Wainwright return to form as the rust from Tommy John had fully worn off. Uh, Wainwright would get off to a hot start, breaking a 100-year-old record by striking out 28 hitters across his first four starts without walking a single batter. By June 13th, he had already won 10 games. Overall, he had a fantastic year, throwing a league-high 241.2 innings with an NL-leading 19 wins to go along with 219 strikeouts, 2.94 ERA, and a 1.068 whip. He goes to his second All-Star game and finishes second in the NL Cy Young voting. With 6.3 war, he finished second to winner Clayton Kershaw's 8.1 war, he pitched just five innings less than Wayne, but had an astounding 1.83 ERA on the season with 232 strikeouts. Once again, Wayne was great, but kind of always a bridesmaid, never the bride, if that makes sense. He just 
second best in the league uh, again and again. The Cardinals follow Wainwright's lead and finish with the best record of Wainwright's career to this point, winning 97 games in the NL Central to boot. Now, first St. Louis would face fellow NL Central rival Pittsburgh in the NLDS. Wainwright would make two starts in the series, first in game one where he dominates, tossing seven innings with nine strikeouts and just one earned run thanks to a home run off the bat of Pedro Alvarez. The Cardinals would win that game 9-1, to but would go on to lose games 2-3. and three. After pulling out a tense 2-1 to one game, a win in game four, Wainwright stepped back up to the mound in the decisive Game 5, and once again, he delivered big time, tossing a complete game while giving up just one run and striking out six. The Cardinals will win the game and the series in a large part from Wainwright's fantastic performance. In the NLCS, St. Louis would face the Dodgers. Having pitched twice in the series before this, Wainwright would only make one start in the series in Game 3, tossing seven innings, of two-run ball with five strikeouts, once again stepping up big when the team would need him. St. Louis would win this series in six games, and for the second time in three seasons, and the third time in Wainwright's career, the Cardinals were in the World Series again. Now, on the biggest stage in the game, Wainwright pitched in Game 1 against the Red Sox and had a solid, if unspectacular, start, throwing five innings, giving up three earned runs and four strikeouts. His counterpart in John Lester threw an absolute gem and so Boston took game one. The series would go back and forth until Wainwright came back to the pitching mound looking to go toe-to-toe with Lester again. And this time they had a proper pitching duel. Wainwright pitches throwing seven innings of three-run ball with ten strikeouts. Now, unfortunately, Lester was magnificent once again, throwing 7.2 innings of one-run ball. So Wainwright was good, but but someone was a little just a little bit better. This sounds familiar. Boston would go on to win Game 5 and seal up the series with a win in Game 6, giving Boston their third World Series win in the last decade. Unfortunately for Wainwright, this wouldn't be obviously the last time in his career he would see the playoffs, but this would be his last World Series. Either way, it was an all-time playoff run for Wayno across five starts. He had just 10 earned runs across 35 innings pitch, which was good for a 2.57 ERA, along with 34 strikeouts. That's how you step up when it matters the most. And that that is ultimately Wainwright's calling card. It's why he lives so prominently in Cardinals lore, is that when the money was on the table, nine times out of ten, Adam Wainwright delivered for you in the playoffs. Now, there was no real way for anyone to know it yet, but at 32 years of of age, Wainwright had a lot of tread on the tires, a lot of injury history, and 2014 would be really the last real year of his prime. For his part, he was utterly dominant, tossing 227 innings with 179 strikeouts to go along with 20 wins and a 2.38 ERA and a 1.031 whip. He's in all-star for the third and final time of his career while pitching to uh, the tune of a 6.1 war. That was the fourth highest pitcher war in the NL, and for his side of things, Wainwright finished third in the Cy Young voting behind Johnny Cueto and winner Clayton Kershaw, who totaled an NL-leading 7.7 war. Wainwright was pretty darn good through, throughout that season. Heck, he even finished eighth in MVP voting. Wainwright had allowed 13 runs in 16 of his first 18 starts, which is incredible. Uh, nine of those starts included totals with seven or more innings pitched, 
and zero earned runs allowed per, I believe it's the Elias Sports Bureau. It was the first time in Major League history that any pitcher had achieved that feat in his first 18 starts of the season. Wainwright finished his pre-All-Star break total with a 12-4 record, a 1.83 ERA, which allowed him to join Hall of Famer Steve Carlton as the only Cardinal to post an ERA less than two and at least 12 wins before the All-Star break. Now, as an ill omen of things to come, Wainwright would struggle, or at least relatively struggle, thanks to a bulky elbow that hampered him all season long. He would pitch through it, and despite often, like, he would, you could tell he was changing his mechanics to compensate for the pain, he would deny that his elbows bothered him all year long. The Cardinals, for their part, would once again win a boatload of games and capture the division. In the NLDS, they would face the Dodgers, and they would emerge victorious, winning the series 3-1. to Wainwright made one start in the series, got uncharacteristically lit up, throwing 4.1 innings with six earned runs and five strikeouts. Probably speaks to the amount of pain he was pitching through at the time. Things would get better for him, though, in the NLCS, as he'd make two starts throwing 11.2 innings with just four earned runs and nine strikeouts. This included the decisive Game 5, where Wainwright went through seven innings with two runs given up and seven strikeouts. Unfortunately, much like in all his MVP races, he was good, but someone was slightly better. As Madison Bumgarner matched him, and in the end, the game and the series was decided by St. Louis's bullpen falling apart. The Giants would win the series 4-1, to sending the Cardinals home to the offseason. And I mentioned ill omens before, but at the end of October, Wainwright would have surgery on his elbow to remove cartilage. But his elbow was far from okay, his body was far from okay, and he would make it through the offseason and spring training intact, and the elbow looked okay, only for him to rupture his Achilles tendon at the end of April after just four starts. You have to wonder if all that time pitching in pain and altering his mechanics ended up putting a lot of strain on the Achilles if nothing else, this happens a lot in sports where you'll have an injury and so you try to nurse that injury or try to do what you normally do differently to try and compensate or protect the injury and you end up hurting something else in your body because now it's taking on more of a strain than it normally does. And I don't know if that's what happened here. I'm not a doctor, but it seems unlikely that the injuries weren't related. It's hard to have that bad of luck. Now, Usually, you miss at least nine months recovering from an injury like this. Uh, think of, if you follow football, Aaron Rodgers just did this same injury um, and, and has been going through it, and that's where he's ended up is, you know, that nine months. It's where everyone does end up, uh, usually, when you have this kind of injury. But Wainwright beat that timetable and actually come back in five months to pitch in the final two weeks of the season. And this frustrates me. You're going to, I apologize, I'm supposed to be objective, but you're going to hear as sometimes will happen. The frustration come through in my voice here. Teams are supposed to be the adults in the room, right? When you are, the players are always going to want to play. <laughs> That's just how, the, that is how they are wired. It's what makes them great. And you have to protect them from themselves. You have to be the adult in the room, not just for their sakes, but for your sake as well. Players are, if, if you're going to be callous enough to not view them as people, which you should, view them as people. But if you're making an investment in this player, you want them around long-term, not short-term, right? And the Cardinals consistently with Wainwright, I don't know if they let him drive the bus or if it was them making the decisions here, but this is the second time now he has come back early from major injuries. And 
it effectively wrecks his career and ends it early, at least his effectiveness early. And you have to wonder how we would have seen Wainwright's career differently and blossom differently uh, longer for a longer period of time, so to say. If the Cardinals had just let him come back from injuries in the time that they're supposed to, there's a reason it takes that time frame. And you have to be the adult in the room. You have to be the one to say, no, this is the right way to do this. Even if the player wants to come back, even if the player is going to be sulky and sullen about it and what, you have to be the adult in the room. That's your job. And repeatedly with Adam Wainwright, it feels like the Cardinals didn't do that uh, in the name of trying to win one more playoff round or whatever. And you just... It's admirable for Wainwright to want to do those things, but it's it's clearly not good for him in the long run. And and it's not good for anyone. Again, they have these timetables for a reason. And it's just frustrating. I appreciate you hearing my rant. Uh, we'll move on. But overall, he'd finished 2015 with a 1.61 ERA across 28 innings pitched, but it was enough time to allow him to be playoff eligible. So the Cardinals would win 100 games and the division once again. Now, in the NLDS, Wainwright pitched out of the bullpen, making three appearances, tossing 5.1 innings total against the Cubs, giving up just one run with six strikeouts. The Cubs would end up winning the series 3-1, and the Cardinals were eliminated. And one other thing that I think about this is that you have to wonder how much Wainwright missing the World Series run in back in 2012 or whatnot. You have to wonder if that also is affecting why. He rushed back from injury is, you know, maybe there's a little bit of like, I had FOMO missing out on that that first World Series, and I'm never going to do that again. You you have to wonder if that was sitting in the back of his head. But again, I mean, this this ends his prime. And, you, you know, I mean, you, you think about it, right? We're talking, he was only worth about 44.9 war in his career. But if you look at four of the five years preceding this season, he had been worth at least six war. He finished in the top two or three of Cy Young voting in those four years. You know, basically after this, he has one season where he's worth more than two war out of nine seasons from here on out. He never sees an all-star game again. He essentially becomes a glorified inning eater, you know, innings eater type workhorse type. And you just wonder, you know... What could have been? I mean, you know, he gets a couple more six, you know, you know, six war, you know, seasons under his belt, and he gets up in the sixties or the fifties, you know. Suddenly he's Jim Cat, and we can talk about him, and that we're going to talk about that later, not the, you know, sort of, you know, spoil alerts, but you know, that that could get him in the Hall of Fame, and he's not going to, and that's frustrating because he he, he could have been, and he, he he's right on the edge of deserving to. And, you know, I mean, he would have improved that that Cy Young, you know, win share or whatever. You know, it would have been just a different story for Adam Wainwright. So, like I said, it just frustrates me, and I'm going to get off of it, I promise. Maybe. Maybe. But, you know, I guess, again, there's just a reason. And as you're going to see, it was totally worth it in the end because they do make the playoffs. They win, gosh, 100 games. They win the division again, seems like again. It was an essential thing to rush him back for a 100-win team that probably didn't necessarily need him. Ah! Uh, sorry. In in the NLDS, so they make the playoffs, against the Cubs, Wainwright would pitch entirely out of the bullpen, making three appearances, tossing 5.1 innings 
against the Cubs, giving up just one run with six strikeouts. The Cubs would end up winning the series 3-1. to one. It wasn't even necessarily close, and the Cardinals were eliminated. And, again, you just have to wonder what the effects of rushing back would end up having on Wainwright for the rest of his career. He wasn't that young anymore. He's never really the same after this. And I'm the first to admit I'm no doctor, but uh, you look at this. This marks the end of his prime. And... You just have to wonder, he was worth at least six war in four of the five years preceding this season. And it finished in the top two or three of Cy Young voting in those four years. After this, he has one season worth more than two war out of nine seasons after this. He never sees an all-star game and essentially becomes a glorified innings eater type workhorse type of pitcher. And you just have to wonder what could have been, really. He gets another one or two six war years and suddenly we're looking at he's in the mid-50s and he gets another season where he's in the top two or three Cy Young voting. So he really ups that Cy Young win share. All these different things. And suddenly you can make an argument for him as a Hall of Famer. And, and he got robbed of that, whether by his own doing or by Cardinals decision making. And it just it, it breaks my heart. It really does. Moving on, though, Wainwright returns to the rotation for the 2016 season and he really struggles across 198.2 innings. Tossing 4.62, tossing a 4.62 ERA, leading the NL in hits given up and earned runs, while striking out just 161 hitters. His FIP of 3.93 does show the Cardinals' defense wasn't doing him any favors that season, but neither was he, as this was his highest FIP since 2007, which was just his second season in the league. A big part of the problem was that Wainwright had a WHIP of 1.404. His walk per nine had nearly doubled, as had his home run per nine. And the Cardinals would struggle along with Wainwright and win just 86 games, finishing second in the division and missing the playoffs. Unfortunately, this was just the beginning of a multi-year trend for both Wainwright and for the Cardinals. 2017 rolled around and the injuries started adding up for Waino. He would occasionally flash signs of his previous greatness, but could never really sustain it. Across the first half of the season, he had a 5.2 ERA and 18 stars before mid-back tightness put him on the injured list for multiple weeks. He would make three more starts when he came back before heading back to the injured list with a right elbow impingement after an alarming drop in his velocity showed something was wrong. We get the cartilage trimmed on his elbow and even got PRP injections in his elbow. When he returned in September, he would pitch the rest of the year out of the bullpen. And in the offseason, he would undergo cartilage surgery on his elbow. But he was supposed to be ready to go for the 2018 season. Unfortunately, the injuries continued to plague him in that season as well. He would first deal with hamstring issues before inflammation in his elbow flared up and would eventually place him on the 60-day injury list by the end of May. Overall, he would throw just 40 innings and would struggle in those innings to the tune of a 4.46 ERA. 2019 showed some positive signs for Wainwright. Overall, he stayed relatively healthy, which was a victory in and of itself. With that health, his performance improved as well, throwing 171 innings, the 4.19 ERA, and a 153 strikeouts, and a 1.427 whip while going 14-10. and 10. And for their part, the Cardinals would win 91 games and the Central Division, returning to the playoffs. They would win the NLDS over Atlanta, with Wainwright making one start. In vintage Wainwright fashion, he stepped up in the big moments, throwing a 7.2-inning shutout with eight strikeouts in the NLCS against the Nationals. Wainwright would make two appearances, including one start, where he'd throw nine innings total in the series with 11 strikeouts and just three earned runs. 
Unfortunately, that year, Washington was the team of destiny that year, and they would end up beating the Cardinals in a four-game sweep despite Wainwright's great start. The following year was the COVID-shortened pandemic season of 2020. Perhaps because he was finally starting to actually recover health-wise or because the shortened season allowed him to go all out, Wainwright bounced back in a big way. Across 65.2 innings, he struck out 54 hitters with a vintage-feeling 3.15 ERA and 5 wins in 10 starts. At this point, it's worth noting he is 38 years old, but suddenly he's pitching like he was years younger. Again, giving you a sense of what could have been. Now, St. Louis would make the playoffs as a wild card in the expanded playoffs. They're finishing second in the NL Central. They would lose the wild card series 2-1 to one to the Padres. Wainwright made one start in the series, throwing just 3.1 innings while giving up two runs and striking out three. Kicking back over to 2021, where we have a, a full season back again here. Wainwright's great. At 39 years old, he throws 206 innings with a 3.05 ERA. He ends up striking out 174 hitters. He has a whip of 1.057. Like, you really... Is Wainwright back? At that age, that's incredible, especially given his injury history. It, it was really something else. It was a really a very fun season. And what was fascinating is obviously he oh, still had his good curveball. But he did a lot of it with throwing a sinker and with his fastball and locating. And just really, it was a really fun season for Wainwright. He would finish 7th in the Cy Young Awards that year and, what, 20th in MVP it was not an all-star or anything like that, but it was just a fun thing to see him bounce back and really give us one last good season for the ages. He wins 17 games that season. The The Cardinals would end up making the playoffs after winning 90 games. They finished second in the NL Central, but they would make the playoffs. And then in the playoffs, looking at that year, they would face in that wild card series the Dodgers. They would lose the series, but Wainwright makes uh, one start and throws a, a real gem. He throws 5.1 innings pitched. He gives up just one earned run on a home run. He strikes out five. Again, for 39 years old, not too shabby there in the playoffs. Wainwright always stepping up in the biggest moments for his team. Unfortunately, they would lose the series, like I said, to the Dodgers and would be eliminated it unfortunately was not destined to be that this new sort of vintage Wainwright would stick around. Um, again, just now he's 40 years old. He's had so many injuries. He throws a ton of innings in 2022. You have to wonder at some point, because he doesn't pitch particularly well in, in 2022. He does throw a ton of innings. He has a 3.71 ERA. Over that time period, he only strikes out 143 hitters. He has a 1.283 whip. It's clear that the, the, the year before was like the last, the candle burns brightest before it goes out moment. And you have to wonder why he kept pitching. And part of it just probably had to be that he was closing on 200 wins. And that's an important milestone for a player's legacy. And he was closing on 100 wins at Bush Stadium, which he would accomplish that year. That's probably a big part of what kept him going here. The Cardinals won three games and finished first in the NL Central, um, but then they would end up losing to the Philadelphia Phillies in the wild card series. And actually, at this point, Wainwright wouldn't even pitch in the series. That's how uh, how rough things were getting for him. And like you said, you, we all saw the the ending kind of coming here. Um, 
And then carry over into 2023, where he would indeed make it to to his 200th win, which was the big part of the season. But he was, I mean, not good in 2023. Again, he's 41. It's not surprising he wasn't good. So I don't want to knock on him or focus on it too much. You know, he threw 101 innings pitched. He wins five games. He has 740 ERA, a 1.901 whip. Uh, it was time. And so he announced that that year would be his last year. And uh, at the end of the season, he retires uh, this year. And, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a tough legacy to reckon with. As someone who lived and watched, uh, you know, through the time he pitched, I just, I remember the dominant pitcher. I remember just going into, I was a, I've told this before, while I am a Guardians fan uh, for life, I was also a Cubs fan growing up because my best friend loved the Cubs. They were on TV all the time. It was just, I, I loved the Cubs. And that meant I just, you know, not to say I hated Wainwright, but obviously they're, that's their arch rival of the Cubs. And so I, I often just knew that when we faced them, be like, oh, well, that's a loss. That's how you felt about facing Adam Wainwright in that time period. And, you know, I mean, you see how close he came to winning Cy Young Awards. And I don't think he deserved to necessarily win any of them, but he came so close. And you saw how time, how many times he was, you know, consistently the second best pitcher in the league. And I think that's going to be his, his legacy as a negative. And I think it's important we view it as a positive. To remember just how good Adam Wainwright is and was, and and perhaps more importantly, remember what he meant to Cardinals fans and to the team the, itself. I mean, he went to three different World Series, um, like huge, huge part of that team and lore uh, and history of that team. And you know, as much as I've ranted against it, you know, was more than willing to sacrifice for that team. It's probably part of the reason he's so beloved is because he always pushed so hard to come back and always to be there for the team when they needed him. And, and again, I said the, the numbers at the beginning, but he's one of the greatest playoff pitchers ever. When the, when the Cardinals put him on the biggest stage, Wainwright always delivered. And that is, that's going to be his legacy. It's why he's so beloved in St. Louis. And I think it's deserved. So, uh, you know, don't remember the, the injured years. Uh, try to remember the, you know, in the years that after injuries wrecked his career, trying to remember the good ones, the dominant ones, when we think of Adam Wainwright, because they were fun and they were good, and he was really, really good um, during that time period. So now we need to talk about two last things here, and then we'll wrap up our day. First, we'll discuss his Hall of Fame qualifications, and then we will try to rank uh, Adam Wainwright on our big old list. Before we do so, though, let's take our last break here real quick. Welcome back. So, is Adam Wainwright a Hall of Famer? Unfortunately, I'm going to say no. And, you know, there are a lot of things that could have pushed him over the edge. Like, again, I feel like he had another two, you know, six more seasons or had a little more effectiveness later in his career. I could have definitely seen him if we had gotten up to, like, 55 war uh, to maybe 60 war. We would have seen him, you know, spill over into like, ah, you know what, that's close enough territory. You know, we, we did it for for several pitchers and for several players. I think we I think we could have gotten that done um, for Adam Wainwright. But unfortunately at 44.9, it's just not, I don't think it's enough, uh, you know, especially considering he did win any Cy Youngs. Um, he's only a three-time All-Star. He's got two gold gloves and a silver slugger, but like that, that 
doesn't mean that much with pitchers. Uh, so I, I sit down and say, you know, at no point was he ever the best pitcher in the league. There's no Cy Youngs where I'm like, ah, now he was robbed. He needed that needed to go to him. I, I just don't think he's a Hall of Famer, unfortunately. Um, I think he's a, a Cardinal Hall of Famer, but I don't know if he deserves to go into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and, and again, that's a shame because I think injuries robbed him of that and, and not managing his own health and recovery from injuries um, robbed him of that because he certainly was a Hall of Fame caliber pitcher for the time period that he pitched. Um, and that just kind of, you, you don't ever want to see that, right? That's not the thing that we want to see. We're fans. We want to see these pitchers succeed. We want to see them uh, do great. So, yeah, it just, it just kind of breaks my heart. Um, and, you know, I think looking at it, This kind of makes the list a little difficult, right, as to where he's going to go on the list. Um, and it's interesting, just to give you an idea, kind of on that Hall of Fame argument. So I'm looking at the baseball reference, like similar pitchers through age 41. And you look, and don't get me wrong, there's some good ones in here, like Oral Hershiser, who you've heard me argue in the past is a Hall of Famer. Um, Jamie Moyer, you've heard me argue, he's eh, on the border. I don't know if I'd have put him in, but like, he, he certainly is in the discussion. David Wells, Bartolo Colon, who we're going to talk about in a few weeks here. Um, uh, th th there are certainly some, some, you know, some arguments for certain pitchers and his similarity. But, you know, really out of all of them, I actually don't think any of them are, uh, are, are Hall of Famers, not even Hershiser. But I did argue Hershiser should have been a Hall of Famer. Um, but... Frankly, Hershiser was better. I, like, I look at this, and Hershiser was better. He had that 10 extra war that I talked about. Uh, he has uh, Cy Young's to his name, you know, that sort of thing. So I, th I think that's where we kind of get into that territory of, was he as good as Oral Hershiser? No. And so, like, I think Hershiser should have been in the Hall of Famer, but I just don't think he's quite there. Now, looking at the list, and this will be a bit of a quick one, too. We're running a little long on time here, but is to ask ourselves, where on our list does Adam Wainwright end up? For any listener who may be uh, new here, we have a big list of every player we've talked about on the podcast that we've ranked them in order of both statistical importance, career accomplishments, and cultural importance to both their team, to the league, to, to representation, to all sorts of different factors that are mostly subjective in, in, in mind. It's my podcast. I get to do what I want. <laughs> but uh, to give you an idea of the, the list of brief overview, the top 20 are Sadaharu O at number one, Satchel Page at number two, Ted Williams at number three, Josh Gibson at number four, Barry Bonds at number five, Mickey Mantle at number six, Greg Maddox at number seven, Mike Trout at number eight, Ricky Henderson at number nine, Ken Griffey Jr. at number 10, Ichiro Suzuki at number 11, George Brett at number 12, Adrian Beltre at number 13, Shohei Otani at number 14, Clayton Kershaw at number 15, Eddie Murray at number 16, Edgar Martinez at number 17, Sandy Koufax at number 18, Tony Gwynn at number 19, and Hank Greenberg at number 20. Now, moving down to... Number 25 is going to be Ron Santo. Number 30 is Willie Stargell. Number 35 is Freddie Freeman. Number 40 is Paul Molitor. Number 45 is Oral Hershiser. Number 50 is Dizzy Dean. 55 is Jorge Posada. 
At number 60 is Prince Fielder. Number 65 is Tony Stone. Number 70 is Jason Bay. 75 is Mike Sweeney. Number 76 is Herb Score. 77 is Mark Pryor. And then number 78 is James Paxton. So that's our list. And it's an interesting question to where Wainwright fits into this. And I think a good place to start is to just look at some similar pitchers, right? So if we talk about, let's go down, let's start at Oral Hershiser at number 45. So Hershiser, a very similar pitch in terms of war, some injury history issues, very similar pitchers, except for Hershiser was just a step better. For at least one season, Hershiser was the best pitcher in the league, where he won a Cy Young, and if you go back to that episode, I firmly believe there was at least one to two more seasons where he should have won a Cy Young, or at least gotten more consideration for that Cy Young. I think that alone is enough to push Hershiser up above him. But then you throw in, he was an ALCS MVP, he was a World Series MVP, he was an NLCS MVP. He matches Wainwright in postseason excellence. He also won a Silver Slugger, amazingly enough. I, if you didn't know that about Earl Hershiser, go back and listen to the Earl Hershiser uh, podcast. And then he also has about 10 war on Wainwright. So I think it's a clear-cut case that Wainwright stays behind Hershiser. So then we go down to... From Hershiser, the next pitcher that we can look at is Vita Blue. Same thing, Vita Blue's got uh, a sign and an MVP. While having insanely similar numbers, they're both in the 40s in war. They both pitched close to the same amount of innings, strikeouts, similar, frankly, similar pitchers, really. But then you also throw in that Vita Blue is one of the most important African-American pitchers ever in terms of his legacy. That's a huge deal. That I get into thinking it's pretty clear-cut that Blue should be a vote too, because Wainwright doesn't have the awards and was never the best pitcher in the league. And Vita Blue was it uh, once, in fact, was considered the most valuable player in the league, let alone the best pitcher. We get Corey Kluber at number 47. Very similar numbers. In fact, actually, uh, Wainwright has him beat out in terms of war by about 10 war. But Kluber won two Cy Youngs. At some point, Kluber was, while they have similar, like, Peak lengths. They both have the same problem, the same disc that they were both the best, you know, amongst the best pitchers in the league, but only for five or six years. Kluber won two Cy Youngs. So while Wainwright was consistently the second best pitcher in the league, Kluber was the best pitcher in the league multiple times. And I think I've made arguments on the Corey Kluber episode. He probably could have won a third, had a good argument for it. And then on top of it, he matches. Uh, Wainwright in terms of his sort of Cy Young bona fides when he didn't win, finished third twice in Cy Young voting. So there's certainly a place where he's probably at least equal to Wainwright. If, if you make the argument Wainwright should have won some Cy Youngs, which I don't think he should have, those are all pretty clear-cut cases. I think that there's a place where, and to give you an idea, actually, to give you an idea, Kluber's at 2.6 career shares for Cy Youngs, which is 16th all-time. Remember when we said Wainwright was uh, 25th? So I, I think he stays behind Kluber, if that makes sense as well. We get down to Kelly Jansen. That's an interesting question, but again, that's a future Hall of Famer and probably the second-best closer of all time. I think I'm willing to keep Jansen there because if you actually go down the Dizzy Dean, this is an interesting argument. Is where things get interesting is Dizzy Dean. Now Dizzy Dean, I was shocked at first. Also did not win an MVP. Did not win a Cy Young, I should say. 
but I don't know if I, my brain doesn't know if the Cy Young Award existed yet is part of the problem. And you ask yourselves, do we hold that against DCD? No, that's why he's ranked where he is, because he actually won an MVP. <laughs> won MVP, their numbers are very similar between him and Ray, but he's got him beat in ERA with a 3.02 ERA. He doesn't have as many wins as Wainwright, but he also didn't pitch as long as Wainwright. He only pitched for 12 seasons. He finished, he won an MVP, and then in, in 1934, and finished second MVP voting in 35, and in 36, also finished second MVP voting. So I think we keep Dizzy Dean up there, and he's a Hall of Famer. I think we can say Dizzy Dean probably outpaces Adam Wainwright here. So then we get down to where things get really interesting. That's Jim Cat at 51 and Jamie Moyer at 52. So looking at Jim Cat, it's another one where they're almost identical in war. war. Jim Cat's got 50 war, but he, he kind of cheats. He pitched for 25 years, where Wainwright only pitched for about 15 or 18, I think. 18 years, yeah. And he did more accumulation than, than Wainwright did. They're both three-time All-Stars. Um, they both went to the World Series. Uh... Cat was a 16-time uh, Gold Glover, but that I, I feel about Gold Glovers on pitchers it's not as big of a deal as uh, you would like to think it is. And Cat doesn't quite have the Cy Young bona fides that Wayne does, and so that's an interesting, interesting question. Cat has almost 83 more wins than than Wainwright does, and he actually has more saves than Wainwright does. <laughs> he pitched almost double the innings that he did. He pitched for 25 years. Like it's an interesting. If you were to ask me who I'm picking to pitch an important game for me, I'm picking Wainwright. I think Wainwright, Wainwright was the better pitcher. And to give you an idea of just how much better pitcher he was, uh, Wainwright was 25th in that that Cy Young shares. Cat was 0.32, so he's 658th all time. I'm sorry, 0.0. I'm sorry, that's MVP shares, which is impressive. But for Cy Young shares, 0.06 career shares. So he's 276th in Cy Young ranking. But ultimately, here's the reason why I think I go with Jim Cat. He's got more war, but mostly he's got almost double Wainwright's innings pitched. And if you look at it that way, Wainwright has a career 356 ERA across how many innings? 2,668 innings, right? Jim Cat has a 3.45 ERA across 4,530 innings, almost 2,000 more innings than him. So he had he was excellent longer than that's across 25 years. So he pitched way more and still ended up better in those stats than he was. And if you look at FIP, let's see. So what's what is Jim Cat's career FIP? 3.41. What was Wainwright's is uh, 3.54. So they're pretty close in FIP, but Cat had that lower FIP over, and that's fielding independent pitching. So it's it's more of a better measure of what the pitcher is doing by himself without factoring in defense and things like that. And Cat's is better. So I think Jim Cat stays ahead of Adam Wayne right here. So now we ask ourselves about Jamie Moyer, right? So Jamie Moyer is a guy who I love. I love Jamie Moyer. I loved watching him pitch. It was fun watching a pitcher pitch nearly into his 50s. But the numbers are pretty 
close in a lot of ways. And Moyer could, you could make the innings pitched argument. He's 4,074 innings pitched, which is, again, over 2,000 more than, than Wainwright pitched. But Wainwright, A, did way better in Cy Young voting, was more dominant at times than, than any time Moyer was. Moyer's is all pure longevity, but his best finish was fourth in Cy Young voting in 2001, whereas Wainwright was multiple to second place and third place finishes. And they're very close in war. Moyer had 49 war across 25 years pitching. Wainwright had 44 across 18 he much better than Yuri Moyer was at 425. So I, I think this is the perfect spot. Looking at it, just Moyer was only a one-time All-Star, went to one World Series. I think this is the the perfect spot for for Adam Wainwright right here. It recognizes both his importance to the Cardinals, putting him above some beloved players, but also keeps in mind the shortness of his career and his lack of awards, but also still keeps the playoff part of things. In mind, I, I think this is a really great... Cause he's still above Whitey Ford. And players we know, Evan Longoria here, and, and, and I'm looking at Moisa Lou, Albert Bell. He's ahead of Kyle Hendricks. Like, so it's not necessarily... I feel like this is an accurate representation of his value, but isn't necessarily like mythologizing it either and acknowledging his warts and things like that. I think this is where a good spot for him is. Let me know if you think differently, and I'd love to talk about it and maybe make some adjustments or, or take a look at it. But I think for right now, Adam Wainwright's going to be our new number 52 on the list, and we'll go from there. So that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to spend your week or weekend or whenever you're listening to this. Uh, thank you for spending it with me. And talk about Adam Wainwright. It's a fun guy to talk about and a very interesting legacy to analyze. If you uh, want to get in touch with the podcast, you can reach me at port. No, I'm sorry, at Daniel J. Port on Twitter. You can reach the podcast at LB Legacies on Twitter, or you can reach the podcast via email at longballlegacies at gmail.com. I've taken requests, I've taken feedback or, or thoughts. You can also always reach me at Daniel Port. If you're on the Discord, you can always reach me on, on Mitchell's Discord. But uh, thank you so much again for listening. I think what we're going to do is we're going to keep going with the, the retirees and talk about some of the important players who retired this year. So I think next week is going to be Miguel Cabrera. Talk about good old Maggie, one of the greatest hitters of his generation. And maybe one of the greatest hitters of all time. And, and it'll be fun to dive into him and his legacy as well. So check that out. That should be coming up soon. And until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. January. Happy New Year. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much.